0: immersive audio podcast in conversation with industry thought leaders practitioners artists academics and entrepreneurs discussing all aspects of this rapidly evolving industry from art science and business to practical insights and project case studies we aim to inform educate explore and unite the community
1: Jose Burgund and Francesca Panetta, welcome to the Immersive Audio Podcast. How are you today?
2: Good, thank you. Great, thanks
1: for having us. No problem at all, absolute pleasure. Right, again, I'm having guests from very far uh, overseas. Um, Can you tell us where are you based? Where are you at the moment?
0: Uh, We're both in Cambridge, Massachusetts.
2: Yeah, we're here on the uh, MIT campus right now where Fran works and I am a fellow in the Open Documentary Lab and uh, we, uh, yeah, so we're colleagues of sorts.
1: Awesome. What was the time difference? It's half 7 p.m. in London.
0: Five hours.
1: But you're not from Massachusetts. You... you're from different cities right?
2: I've been living in Massachusetts for
1: the past uh, 15 years or so
2: outside of Boston. Um, I grew up not too far away in Connecticut and I've been all, all over the sort of northeast of the of the of the U.S. for uh, the majority of my life.
0: And I, um, I moved to Massachusetts a, a year and a half ago. I'd been living in, in London for 20 years
2: before that.
1: All right so tell us just a few sentences about your background.
2: So my name is Halsey Burgund. I am a, an independent sound artist and technologist. I suppose is the best, the best phrases to use. Musician as well, and um, I've been working for the past fifteen years or so creating audio installations and uh, musical performances. A lot of audio AR stuff, and I am currently a fellow at the uh, MIT Open Documentary Lab here in Cambridge, Massachusetts, and. Um, yeah, that's, that's most of my background, I think. The quick version.
0: Um, I'm Francesca Panetta. Um, I'm creative director in the Center for Advanced Virtuality at MIT. Um, I've been doing this job for about four months. Before that, i have been working at the Guardian Media Group for the last 13 years. So um, I've got a a background with a, a number of <laughs> different hats. I trained originally as a classical musician and then a radio producer. Um, and I made a number of audio AR apps when I was doing a lot of, of radio and podcast work. Um, and then my career kind of diversified and I've been looking at storytelling with all kinds of different emerging technologies. So AR, VR, AI at the moment. So um, just looking at um, kind of innovative ways to be uh, expressing narratives creatively
1: very interesting so obviously both of you have very interesting and diverse backgrounds Um, how did you end up working together and what is your current project can you tell us a little bit more about that
2: Sure. It's actually it's kind of a funny story how we got to the point where we are now, where we feel like we've been working together for forever, which has been <laughs> wonderful to, to feel that way. But um, about a year, a little maybe about a year ago, um, Fran was in uh, had had recently moved into uh, this area, this part of the world for a, a fellowship at Harvard, and I, being a fellow at MIT, there's lots of opportunities for. Uh, you know cross fellow sort of uh, pollination and whatnot to get to know each other and um, Fran came over to the Open Documentary Lab to give a talk about all the wonderful work she's been doing over the past uh, decade or so and she started talking about her work at the Guardian and VR and stuff and then all of a sudden she launched into this Discussion of these audio AR pieces that she was doing, where she would, uh, you know, basically cover a, a certain part of the world, uh, part of uh, the landscape with with audio that would change based on where you are and how you walked around as a listener. And I was, it was, it was one of those moments where you're like, oh my gosh, somebody's been doing the same thing as me on a, on a, a from a different place in a different in a slightly different way for sure, with different aesthetics, etc. But the same kind of core exciting thing. And I thought, I thought I was much more on my own than than I am. And it was it was just this wonderful moment for me to realize that Fran had been, you know, for as long as me doing this same kind of stuff. So immediately after that I I sort of harassed and um and we have we have uh you know subsequently um gotten uh become good friends but also become you know colleagues who are working together on on various projects, um including audioar.org, but also uh, a project right now which Fran mentioned a little bit which is more of a it's less of an audio and more of an ai based uh project but um we're happy to talk about that as well. So Fran, I don't did I represent that story the the origin story.
0: <laughs> yeah, I mean what we what we found was that um you know, I started doing audio ar ab- about a decade ago um in London and Halsey had been doing it here in the states and we'd been doing ha- having these kind of parallel uh, explorations and and hadn't heard of each other and and so it was just so exciting to be comparing everything from you know what techniques we used for you know laying music beds and did we use ducking and you know how many layers were we using we just got into even the first time we met we got into this huge detail of really the technical specs as well as um, the content as well um, that you know we had been we had been using to to create the the pieces that we make.
1: What got you interested in immersive media in general? To begin with, how did you end up on the path you are today?
2: Ah, um, my that that's a probably a multi pronged answer for for me. Um, I I've always been an audio person. I was a musician when I was growing up. I played the piano for a little while, then I switched to trumpet, and I switched to Drums, making my parents increasingly upset about the loudness that I was creating in the basement. But um, that was something that was always part of my childhood. And uh, as I got older, I got more interested in you know I was in bands in college and and after college and whatnot. And uh, I got more and more interested in um, actually in the spoken human voice as a as a um, as a musical element. So I started composing pieces with. Um, by asking questions of lots of people gathering those answers recording them and and chopping them up and reusing them in different ways within musical contexts and i started doing more and more of that and as i did the pieces became more abstract and then immersion sort of made more and more sense and i started getting more attention from museums and and places like that than i was getting from you know the local dive bars that, <laughs> that didn't want to didn't want to book an act that was um, as sort of odd, perhaps, as what I was doing at the time. So it, I, I kind of had this sort of, uh, I don't know, this this gradual sort of shift from more song-based kind of musical performance to this more immersive, creative um, uh, perspective Um, and now I've been doing museum installations and whatnot for you know the last decade and uh, occasionally I'll I'll think about writing a more more of a song but uh, that was that was my path to get here in a a bit of a roundabout way.
0: Um, I had been really interested in kind of experimental radio art so I'd been I'd been working in BBC Radio 3 for a long time then in Radio 4 then um, you know I was running the podcast department at The Guardian so very much from a kind of radio, um, kind of coming at it from an experimental radio uh, point. I, w- I was running my own podcast at the time, the Hackney Podcast, which I started, in, you know, right back in two thousand and six. Now, and a lot of my work was, um, you know, kind of psychogeographic in in nature. It was very much about our relationship to place and um, what we can do to change that through literature, through art. And uh, the smartphones had come out, and I thought. Wow, we can like we can make we can make audio material that reacts and is specific to the place we are in this is this is really interesting and I hadn't heard of anyone else doing this I kind of I knew of Janet Cardiff's sound walks so I knew there were kind of audio walks um but I didn't know of anywhere that actually you could trigger audio by where you were and like you know i had been obsessed by people like Ian Sinclair and you know, other other writers who write very much about place, and I thought, well, can you change your relationship to the place through the audio you're listening to, and also does the audio have a different feel, a different uh, function if it's interacting with place as well? It felt like all of my passions of music, of interaction, of experimentation, of psychogeography, of radio could kind of all came together. Um, with this possibility of kind of layering and mixing audio um, on location,
1: I think this is a perfect segue for my next question. Can you tell us how did the Audio AR project came about?
2: Sure, um, it's audioar.org is the the name of the site, and it is uh, in its in its infancy. It's in its early early times right now. But as I mentioned before, when Fran and I sort of found um, each other's similar paths in this direction of creating uh, you know location-based audio we um, we've talked a lot about different projects and whatnot and as we've um, been talking, a lot of technology has been uh, being released that allows, to people to do a little more of this work, whether it's, you know, VR and AR stuff, glasses, Bose's glasses, Amazon glasses, you know, Huawei's making glasses too now, apparently. And of course, things like Magic Leap and everybody's talking about Apple's, um, you know, impending uh, AR glasses, which, you know, a lot of the commercial stuff is based more on visuals, but people are starting to think more about um, audio and pure audio experiences um, that are an augmentation of the physical space. And as we as we were realizing that uh, that a lot of stuff was happening in our worlds, in the artistic world, but also in the commercial world, it really felt like um, like it made sense to try to consolidate uh, some of the information that was out there about what was going on, who was doing what, what kind of projects were out there. You know, Fran and I might have heard about each other 10 years ago had had there been a site like this that was sort of con- compiling this information. So, so we thought that it would be a, a great way to, in a sort of non-commercial way, bring together artists, practitioners, documentarians, filmmakers, anybody who's interested in in augmenting a landscape with audio um to to one place and and learn from each other and also bring in you know as as makes sense bring in some of the uh the commercial interests that are um that are interested in in making equipment that that we can use and you know it's a it's a it's a it can be a great symbiotic relationship so we're hoping to be a central place where lots of people can learn and contribute and um and we can hopefully sort of rise as, as Audio-AR, as a, as a practice, um, gets more and more uh, experimented with and, uh, and understood.
1: The four
0: panthers that are standing on the staircase going up outside the decode of black panthers without eyes... They came alive, no one was there, and they came alive and they walked up the stairs and they went off into the woods that are right beyond those stairs, and they spent the whole night there, feeling and they killed and some relaxed, relax, and they ate them, some and then they came back when it's it started to be dawn. To they came back just in
1: time, and they went yep, exactly in the me. same positions There's that they the had been three. in. Same topic, but slightly different question to you, Fran. Can you talk us through your individual roles within the project and um, tell us what you've done so far and uh, your present activities and perhaps your future objectives?
0: Um, So there there are a number of different parts to the site. Um, So one element, for instance, tries to list um, current and past audio AR pieces. Uh, One of the things we realized was there there is nowhere that really documents what's out there to experience, and so some pieces are, are kind of better known than others. But but people who are, are getting into this area, and you know, I bump into people all the time who are, are interested in experimenting in this type of technology. There isn't really a resource for people to go and, and see what has been made and try things out. So that's one of the things that we've tried to do on the site. And, and sometimes it's writing reviews of pieces, or sometimes it's just kind of listing links and details of where people can go to. Um, other things that we found talking to other practitioners were, you know, we, we've all been coming up with our own different techniques of making pieces. and And I think that's great. There shouldn't be like one method, but it does seem there are some techniques that we're all finding out works well. And it's quite painful for us all to be learning all of this through a lot of errors and a lot of trials um, where actually if we had um, a kind of a place to be talking about like the nitty-gritty of recording techniques and different storytelling techniques that work well that um, that could shortcut for some makers some of the pain that certainly we've gone through so that's another part of the site is us trying to talk about you know things that work, things that don't work um, by different people. So kind of tips and tricks. Um, and then as Halsey was mentioning, we've kind of got a technology part too, like different different glasses, AR glasses that are out there, different software authoring systems. Halsey's got his own software authoring system, which, um, which we've got details of on the site. Roundware, which he can certainly talk a lot more about. Um, so you know we're really trying to break down um, lists of different kinds of information that are are going to be interested both to consumers of audio AR and makers of audio AR as well. Um, and our and our ambition for the site is is to continue to grow that kind of material, but also to grow the number of people who are contributing to it as well. And um, Halsey and I have our very specific. Um, techniques that we use and uh, the kind of pieces that we make have got a very specific aesthetics you know my pieces are all terribly tightly recorded I use binaural techniques in a very specific way I layer everything heavily there's no tiny second of like silence ever but like that's only one one approach like some people like to have you know more noise in their pieces. They don't mind if they don't match the acoustic you're in. They don't mind if there's bits of silence between things and and that's fine. but um if we don't have that range and diversity of of different voices talking about kind of different techniques, then um, then I don't think we'll be giving a um a really kind of, Useful kind of resource to the outside community of different techniques. So I, I think, in terms of our our ambition, is to really kind of grow the number of voices that are that are having that kind of dialogue.
2: Yeah, definitely. I mean, creating a community uh, is is important, and it would be you know just sort of putting ourselves out there as a as a a, a resource that is. Growing and certainly isn't comprehensive. Will never be fully comprehensive by any stretch, but is something that um, is a beacon that people can grab onto and and um, and hopefully uh, become a part of. Because we definitely, as Fran says, we definitely don't. This is not the Halsey and Fran show. This is the audio AR um, as a as a wide, broad practice, much of which we have never even heard of or thought about, and we want to learn more. So we're we're all about learning from other people and and sharing what we've uh, what we've learned as well.
1: And we'll make sure to include more details in the podcast description notes about the website and for those who would like to check it out or potentially get involved.
2: Wonderful, thank you.
1: Let's talk about roundware. What is it? What does it do? How did it come about?
2: Roundware is a contributory audio augmented reality platform, Um, and what I mean by that is that it is a a, a software platform, an open source software platform that has a a server and clients for various um, platforms, iOS, Android, the web, which allows uh, people such as myself and others who are interested to create audio AR experiences which is essentially the overlaying of physical geographies with um, various pieces of audio. And Roundware I think somewhat uniquely is focused on the contributory audio AR. And what I mean by that is the people who are doing the listening as they wander around a certain physical location can also contribute to that audio landscape by using the same app on their phone or whatever to uh, make a recording and upload that and have that recording be immediately assimilated into a sort of ever-growing, evolving record of what has happened at this particular physical location. So my art practice has always been, as I mentioned before, very interested in the spoken human voice and collecting voices from people. So Roundware really grew out of a desire for me to further my own art practice um, and Stick a microphone in parts of the world where I couldn't physically get to, which is you know the vast majority of the world. So being able to have smartphones um, that that people have all over the place and being able to control the software on those smartphones and enable people to make their own recordings, upload them to me, and experience those in a in an audio AR setting was uh, extremely exciting to me. So I actually started Round where uh, before the iPhone even came out um, and it was way more kludgy. Uh, You had to manually locate yourself. You couldn't, you know, there was no GPS. So you had to tell the device where you were and all this kind of stuff. Um, But it really started out with this project called Round, um, hence the name Roundware, which was sort of a a museum. The Aldrich Contemporary Art Museum came to me and, and said, we want some kind of audio experience in our museum But we really hate audio tours. We really don't like audio tours. We want to hear from our public more. And we know that you're all about asking questions of the public. And maybe you could do something that was a little more, um, a little different than a standard audio tour. And I thought that was a great idea. Obviously that was something I was already sort of working on and and uh therefore went around looking for software to do this, to enable me to capture and represent audio sort of in real time and and nothing existed. So I unfortunately had to uh had to sort of uh, buckle down and learn a lot of software engineering and and beg favors of lots of wonderful uh software engineers and you know the start of ramware happened at that point and it has subsequently along with the other technologies that are improving and getting better with you know smartphones and GPS and when the App store came out that was obviously a huge a huge uh, boon for being able to spread software um, around on these devices much more easily so that that's that's the origin and I have continued to develop and um hopefully, improve uh, the software over the over the years um, in service of my own work, but as well as um, anyone else who wants to use it. As I mentioned, it is open source, and um I get lots of interesting. I learn a lot from other folks who who try to uh, try don, don, who successfully create projects with it and uh, you know have different approaches. So I've tried to make it as broad as as possible in 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 use within the same kind of aesthetic that it that it originated from.
1: Are there any interesting case studies that you can talk about how other people have used the system? I suppose is it kind of um, one purpose, one approach, or people sort of tend to extrapolate different meanings and 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 purposes through the system?
2: Yeah, definitely. I mean, perhaps an interesting case study is um, the Smithsonian. I've been working with the Smithsonian for a while, and they came to me originally because they were really interested in creating experiences in their museums um, that were more accessible to folks with low vision and or blind entirely. They, they really wanted to um, be able to uh, allow folks with this particular disability to experience what they had to offer in a more, uh, a more full way than they were currently able to. So they came to me and said, hey, can we use round where we really love the idea of somebody who's blind being able to walk through a space with objects and, you know, from the collections of the Smithsonian and hear what other people are thinking about, hear hear how other people even would describe those objects. If you hear 10 people describe a, you know, vase that's on a pedestal, you're going to get 10 very different descriptions. Of course, some things will be similar and some things will be vastly different. And um, that's just with a, a clear question, like describe this object. if you start asking questions of people like, What does this object remind you of, or what how does it make you feel to be in this space? Um those are, you know lots of other uh, really interesting questions that can be extremely, um, Useful for uh, folks who who can't see quite as well um, or can't see at all, um, but also in in the name of universal design, they, we found that this this kind of commentary was really quite interesting to to people who could see just as much as those who couldn't. So um, that that has been a really interesting use case for me, as I did not have much experience at all with working with uh, blind and low vision, the blind and low vision community, and I've learned an incredible amount from them and. Um, it's been really fascinating to sort of see and hear how they uh, how they approach life generally, how they use their devices, how they how they kind of get through the world in, a, in an amazingly uh, you know they are they're, they're as competent as anybody with getting, you know anywhere, and it's it's really quite uh, quite wonderful to be able to uh, learn from them and uh, and provide them with a service that is uh, you know useful in some way
1: just wanted to go back to MIT because you guys are colleagues you seem to work for different department um, do these department collaborate or perhaps it's under one umbrella
0: um, yeah I, I can talk a little bit about that so um, I, I, I work in a newly set up centre called the Centre for Advanced Virtuality and that's been set up to really kind of um, explore what are different ways of kind of layering imagination into the real world and so Could be VR, could be AR, could be AI, could be—I mean, could be Instagram, could be Facebook. Like different ways of kind of projecting imagination um, into the world. Um, So this is a new center that is uh, directed by uh, Professor Fox Harrell, um, and um, Halsey is a fellow at the Open Documentary Lab, um, which actually I've had contact with as well for you know um, at least the last five six years, and. i mean holsey can talk a little bit more about uh specifically what they do but my interaction with them has been through um kind of investigating what different experimental types of documentary can look like so they they are are interested in in artistic um, expressions of kind of non fiction in the broadest term um, and um the project uh, holsey described how we how we met and over, I was doing this journalism fellowship at, at Harvard, and over the over the year that I was there at Harvard, we came up with all kinds of different ideas, audio AR ideas, um, other ideas, and the one that we're making at the moment actually is a, is a film, and it's a film using deep fake technologies. So um, we have just premiered it at the International Documentary Festival in Amsterdam, and it was a physical installation. Um, and, and the premise is it, it takes a speech that was written for Richard Nixon if the Apollo 11 mission had gone had gone badly and if um, the two astronauts, Buzz Aldrin and Neil Armstrong, hadn't been able to return to Earth. Um, there was a really beautiful speech written by uh, Nixon's speechwriter um, Bill Sapphire. And um, our six-minute film uh, kind of goes from the astronauts taking off being... In, in space, and then kind of catapulting down to the moon, and Nixon coming onto television to broadcast this um, this speech that that he actually never gave. So so we worked with with two companies that do uh, video dialogue replacement, and another one that um, works with synthetic voices to make synthetic Nixon voice, and also to um, alter the the. Um, area of speech in the, in the video, so it looks like Nixon is giving the speech. 5,
1: 4, 3, 2, 1, 0. Liftoff. We have a liftoff. 12-1-1-1. may be the problem here. And if We're it
0: doesn't really come, we'll be good. Light fighter, we lost
2: this. Fate has ordained that the men who
0: went to the moon to explore in peace will stay on the moon to rest in peace. a physical film which we set in Amsterdam we set it in a 1960s sitting room so you came and sat down and watched it and it was actually a three video channel um, installation you had a we made a newspaper where people could sit down and also while they're watching the film they could read about how we made the piece what the intentions were the dangers of deep fakes to democracy and um, and culture at the moment and also how to spot deep fakes and this piece is now, um, we're kind of developing this uh, for uh, digital distribution in the new year. So um, there certainly is a strong audio component to that. So developing uh, the Nixon voice model with the company that we were working with, ReSpeech, it was really interesting to both of us um, who come from you know radio, voice, music backgrounds and just how hard it was actually to make um, a voice model of Nixon, um, and then we also worked with um, with a uh, with this video dialogue uh, replacement company, Canny AI, who did all the visuals as well. So, we've been working on that incredibly hard for the last four and a half five months, um, and uh, we're just taking breath, having had it had it uh, premiered in Amsterdam, and now very much working towards uh, future uh, theatre distributions, festival distributions, and um, a kind of online version.
1: I see these interesting and kind of mysterious titles: MIT Center of Advanced Virtuality, MIT's Open Documentary Lab. Uh, Obviously, you're doing really interesting and sophisticated research in that kind of covers a whole variety of technologies, genres, all kinds of things. I suppose. But in your own words, what is the importance for educational institutions like such as MIT to invest and support such initiatives? I guess that's one part of my question. Second part of my question, for young people who potentially listening to this podcast and uh, um, looking for continue or start their higher education, what kind of faculties these programs cover in particular? Is it something that people can participate um, outside of sort of main curriculum? Does it cover certain subjects that people can take as part of their main degree? Just can you elaborate a little bit more on how does that relate to students?
0: I mean, I could say that universities like um, around the world um, are, are doing that. There are there are various places that are doing. Um, that, that have courses which involve kind of experimental storytelling, and there were certainly ones in the UK, um, in City at University of West of England um, that are doing um, that are that are doing interesting research in uh, this area. MIT has got a number of different departments uh, where, as a student, you can take courses that could be. You know, there is an audio AR course uh, actually this term that was happening. There's um, courses that look at History of Experimental Storytelling in Nonfiction. There's there's a game lab here at MIT. Um, These actually, a a lot of these courses at MIT come under CMS, the Comparative Media Studies um, Department. There's also CSAIL, which is uh, the AI department at MIT as well, which um, the professor that I I work with, Fox Harrell, works with, which is also looking at um, how AI can be used in experimental storytelling. So I absolutely think that there are ways that students can be taking courses. Um, also, there are hackathons and you know other kinds of activities that students can be involved in. There's like an AR VR group here at MIT. Um, I was just part of um, a hackathon last weekend, which is uh, arts and technology, and a whole load of different students spending the weekend working with each other to try and do kind of experiments. In in kind of art and tech, and there's a there's an AR and VR hackathon um, which happens in January at MIT as well. And these these are happening not just at MIT, but like in in universities all over the place. So it's definitely worth kind of researching, um, you know, depending on which country you're in and and what specifically you're interested in, um, kind of what different departments are doing. But but yeah, I would say. Look at the media studies departments. The journalism departments are doing interesting things. Arts departments, you know, there's there's transmedia storytelling part as well at MIT. Harvard's got all kinds of transmedia experimental art bits as well. They they are like they're they're kind of they seem to be all over the place. Um, and are kind of variations on a theme wherever you go.
2: Yeah, it's it's super exciting. Um, and as a you know as Fran and I are both really practitioners, not not academics, and I think that is something that I can't really speak for many institutions other than my experience with MIT, but MIT is very open and really realizes that there is a difference between practitioners and academics, and there's a a need and a wonderful, wonderful aspects to both. But really, where it gets exciting is bringing those groups together. And that is really what the fellow Fellow program at Open Documentary Lab is all about. It's they they have a bunch of students, a bunch of grad students, who are studying emerging forms of documentary and and researching all of this stuff. But there's you know there's there's less opportunity to sort of bump elbows with people who are actually out in the world doing this stuff. So they they ask the fellows to come in and and interact with the students. And you know one fellow from uh, sorry one student from a couple of years ago did her master's thesis on, you know, location-based contributory projects and she used roundware as part of that. And it was great to sort of learn from her what else she was researching and she could learn from me what the background of roundware was. And, and it's this really nice confluence of, of academia and, um, uh, of practitioners, which, which I think is, is, is really fruitful. And, um, uh, I hope all institutions do that. I don't, I don't, as I said, I don't actually, I don't actually know but one other point um is that a lot of these groups open documentary lab in particular runs public talks um that uh that you know every tuesday during the semester we have uh, somebody from somewhere coming in to talk about some kind of um, nonfiction storytelling usually in some creative different fashion and um we get speakers from all over the place to uh to tell us what their experiences have been and those are open to the public and people can you know come on in and check it out and meet lots of us and we can you know all learn from each other so it really it really does provide a nice clearinghouse of sorts and, and way of, of getting people to uh, to uh, come together and, and learn so it's been a great experience for me
0: oh, And I would say actually an, an additional point um, uh, about working in academia as opposed to, um, in media because you know I've spent the last 20 years of my career working in um, news organizations of, of you know whether it was radio, BBC or um, the Guardian and both and and many news organizations or, or kind of media organizations are very interested in in experimenting and storytelling but in the end of the day there's always a necessity for them to be available to the public. To be able to kind of justify how many people have seen them and show like real impact um, to be using, you know, either public service money or money from a, you know, newspaper that might be desperately needing those funds for very, very worthwhile investigative journalism. Within a a university, like the remit, at least MIT, is absolutely innovation. Like, what can technology, storytelling, and art, if you're really trying to push the frontiers? what can you do and that's so exciting for me to be in an in an in an arena where it it is that that is foremost of importance rather than how many people have clicked on it i mean of course universities want kind of acknowledgement that the work that they're doing is of use to society but it might not necessarily be through metrics like that and so it's and I, I you know i've only been here for four months but it's really interesting for me to be adjusting to you know kind of success of a of a project being potentially different maybe maybe it's more innovative but less people see it and that's okay um so i think the university is like for me really exciting um kind of forums for this kind of experimentation
2: yeah and just to add i think our Project uh, in event of moon disaster that Fran described before is a really good example of of a different approach to education. I mean, at, at the end of the day, what we're really trying to do is um, sort of sound the bells about about uh, deep fakes, how convincing they can be, how they can increase misinformation in the world, and how you know they're going to become more and more prevalent. And we need to, as a society, sort of watch out for them and, and inoculate ourselves to the extent possible against some of the um, ill effects that um, lots of nefarious folks are and will continue to try to use them for. And, and um, you know, the approach that we took was very much an aesthetic, artistic approach to showing, um, you know, creating a plausible scenario using this deepfake technology and, um, you know, creating a very sort of, uh, you know, immersive, um story that, you know, didn't happen, but but one that is very plausible. And then stepping back and pointing to it and saying, this is fake, this is how we made it. This is what you need to watch out for, et cetera, et cetera. And, you know, we think that using art and using sort of aesthetic experiences in this way will hopefully be a much more um, you know, durable form of of education than perhaps just reading reading an article about um, you know the newest AI-based uh, deep fake detection methods, which is very interesting and great. But we feel that um, if there's a broad there's a broader way, and if we can make an impact, if people will think back a year from now and be like, oh my god, I remember that Nixon video that was fake can't believe that. You know, if they just have that little 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 you know, snippet of information of, of emotion that they experienced when they experienced our peace in their minds, when they're going through the, the world, going through their Facebook feeds and watching all these videos, then we will have been successful. And universities are wonderful places to allow that kind of experimentation to happen. So we're very appreciative of that opportunity.
1: So it's an interesting debate, isn't it? It's certainly a necessity to accommodate the rapid evolution of media, storytelling, broadcast news, etc. Obviously, there's so many different ways of doing that. It's it's countless. But it feels like there's even a deeper meaning and purpose that potentially people just start waking up to and uh, certainly a lot of people with more established views. And what I'm trying to say is that perhaps it might not be the most accurate example, but kind of feels like the beginning of computer era where people saw computers in a lot more kind of basic way in terms of their capabilities at the time for example passing um, short bits of information or executing a particular function but nobody could ever predict how it would evolve in sort of next 50 60 years it's it's gone above and beyond anything that anyone ever could speculate on so this feels like it's an important contribution and investment into a new generation that is becoming digital world savvy, is not probably a right term, but hopefully that makes sense somewhat. People who are familiar with this new concept of new realities, extended realities, which combines all the things we touched on to be able to navigate, to be able to build infrastructure, build the systems, you know, control the ethics and control the legalities because it's as wide and as encompassing as the actual world. That's why the, the number of aspects that we need to address is um, just as big. So what I'm trying to say is that we're doing something for immediate future, but also hopefully we're doing something for for more distant future that is emerging uh, slowly or rapidly, depending from what point of view you're going to look at it. But uh, nevertheless, we can probably see the glimpses or where it's heading.
2: It's a very exciting time to be involved in um, in this stuff. That's that's for sure. I mean, you mentioned the you know the dawn of the com- computer age, and you know we are we are arguably the dawn of the AI age right now, and that's a Uh, You know, one can talk existential threats. One can talk, you know, about, you know, efficiencies, you know, increasing such that nobody has to, no humans have to work anymore. I mean, there's lots of, you know, uh, exciting in a positive way and scary, um, equally scary directions that this world could go in and, and. And yeah, combine that with advances in in virtuality of different sorts, whether it's AR or VR, and discussions of whether we are in base reality or whether we are simply a simulation of some higher reality. And now we're creating these sort of sub simulations is is fascinating stuff. And we could probably talk for um, you know five five podcast lengths on, on 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 sort of philosophical topics of that nature. But it is no doubt an exciting time to be involved in this, and and I certainly have. Learned so much in this uh, in our in event of moon disaster project, learning about um, you know how AI can enhance and and further techniques that we've been using already, and then create totally new um, uh, experiences that uh, that were essentially heretofore not not possible. So, yeah, exciting, scary, hopeful, all at the same time to me
1: inevitable as well.
2: <laughs> yeah, yeah, I mean every tool that comes out is, right? I mean every every hammer can hammer a nail and it also can hammer a head. So, mm-hmm. it's uh it's um yeah, we're trying to we're trying to increase the nail hammering here rather than the uh the other type.
1: A last question around this area before we move on. I'm not particularly familiar with the um, education system in the United States, but in in this specific context, uh, I'm curious to hear How do such initiatives get funded in the US? Is it uh, mainly part of main curriculum that is delivered in um, universities or colleges such as MIT, or is it something that is subsidized and by external companies that have a certain kind of stake in that future?
2: i am I am certainly not an expert on this topic. I can speak to sort of the 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 projects that I've been involved with. and um it is it's a it's a it's a wide variety. Unfortunately, there is not a huge amount of uh, government funding in the u s as opposed to my understanding of what happens in other parts of of Europe. um academic institutions, certainly. Step up and um, and fund either you know through their general research uh, capacities or sometimes you know directly with funds. In our case, for in event of moon disaster, we obviously have support from MIT in the sense that we're both affiliated. Fran is officially employed by, um, which is wonderful. Uh, and then we've also gotten support from the Mozilla Foundation uh, to produce this piece also to specifically to produce the website uh, for this piece um, so Mozilla for those who don't know are the, the the company that makes the Firefox browser and does a bunch of other things and they are they are very um, concerned about uh, largely sort of generally speaking internet health and deep fakes and AI and misinformation is a huge um uh, problem for the health of the internet and the health of those who use it every day. And they support a number of projects, um, of which we were lucky enough to be one this year, that um, they take an aesthetic kind of creative approach to um, teaching people about uh various concerns that, that they have and that we all probably should have. And um, so, you know, Mozilla Foundation is one of uh, of a number of foundations that do a lot of uh, work in this area. Again, it's not my expertise.
1: Are there any upcoming interesting projects that you can talk to me about?
2: Yeah, sure. Um, we've talked about the big ones that we've been working on Um which is the innovative Moon Disaster, specifically um, a project that I am working on now, which will be premiering in the spring, is a, an audio AR project. It is um, uh, it's uh, a project out in California, out at a um, one of the former internment camps, Japanese internment camps called Manzanar. Um, for those who aren't aware, in World War II, um, uh, when the Japanese dropped uh, attacked Pearl Harbor, the U.S. government reacted somewhat. <laughs> I don't know what the right word is to use, but they they reacted very strongly. And um, one of the many things that they did was to um, round up Japanese Americans and. Um, uh, intern them in various camps uh, throughout the country as a security measure, which is what they what they said that they needed to do, because they were concerned that these Japanese Americans were somehow loyal to um, Japan instead of the U.S. Um, so there are uh, several internment camps throughout the the country. One of them, in particular, called Manzanar is outside of L.A. And I am doing a project, an audio AR project there, which uses Roundware, which Basically, takes um, interviews, uh, oral history interviews from lots of people who were interned on those camps uh, during in the in the 40s and uh, the 1940s, and takes little snippets of those voices and basically plays them back on site, actually on this camp. So visitors can come, get off a get out of their car, get off a bus in the middle of this really beautiful but incredibly barren landscape with literally tumbleweed blowing by and big mountains rising up on each side of this plateau, and and then hear these voices of these people who were ripped out of their homes, literally, and put on a bus, the shades down, taken to this same place, and, and they got out of their transportation. And the difference was, of course, they were being forced to live there um, for who knows how long, and who knows who else would be there with them, who knows what they would return to. And it's a, a very traumatic experience obviously for these people. Um, they largely were incredibly resourceful and made the most of, of a horrible situation but the idea of the project is to um, is to you know basically share the experience of these individuals but then also broaden the conversation to one in which you know we have a significant immigration problem uh, discussion in the country right now um, uh, how how to manage that properly is a is a topic of significant debate uh, among our politicians and among most of the citizenry actually and um, my hope our hope my co-producer sue ding um, we both hope that uh that this project will shed some light on you know learning from history and learning that you know interning people citizens of this country and 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 otherizing groups is uh not a not a good thing to do to put it to Put it mildly. So, we're hoping that this project will will get some of that across, and it's been it's been really fun working with the Park Service and um, being able to use audio AR in this uh, in this sort of social justice kind of way. Um, so that that's my other big project right now, uh, and I, I, you know, Fran and I are still working hard on Innovative Moon Disasters. So that's uh, that's where we stand, and of course, the website audioar.org is going to be a, a sort of ongoing ongoing situation with uh, more and more interviews and uh, information being posted there, hopefully regularly. Mm,
1: Thank you for sharing. How about you, Fran?
0: Yeah, I'll be finishing off this project in the new year and I've also got a a British PhD student coming to work with me specifically on audio AR work um, in the new year. So I'm really looking forward to getting back into that too.
1: What would be one piece of advice that you could pass to somebody that you've learned over the years that really helped you in your career?
0: My advice is to experience as much work as you can. So, you know, if you're interested in audio AR, seek the pieces out, uh, really dig out the pieces from the past, see what's out there now, talk to the people who've made them because a lot of people um, that I speak to who are just getting into this, um, they they haven't really surveyed the landscape. And honestly, the only way to figure out um, what works for you um And the techniques you're going to use is by just completely immersing yourself in other people's work. Um, And similarly, similarly, um, collaborating with people. I'm a huge fan of uh, working with people from really diverse backgrounds. Everyone brings different things to projects. And even if you think you've got the absolute clear idea of what it is you want to make and how you're going to implement it, I can absolutely guarantee that if you if you bring in some other people from other disciplines, it will be a richer piece. So um, you know, I think be open-minded about researching the area you're in um, and 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 bringing people into your projects.
2: I will add a little bit to what what Fran said there, which is in 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 maybe perhaps a very simple way, don't be afraid to ask other people for assistance, for help, for um, you know getting stuff done. We are. We are, or should be, a community, and um, we can learn from each other. And uh, I help people all the time with uh, with projects that they need my help on. And and I can't tell you how how much help Fran and I get on uh, on on uh, specifically on on our current project. And it's um, it's really very fulfilling just to obviously get the work done, but also to. You know, create a common goal and and purpose. So don't be afraid to reach out, work, collaborate, and and ask for help as you need it. And and the second thing I would say is, is uh, uh, to not be afraid of technology, new technology. And um, you know, it can be very daunting. When I started Roundware, I had very little computer science education. I had very little experience coding, and I did a lot of research and found that it nothing existed to do what I wanted. So I said, well. I guess I'll just have to make it myself. And I was totally naive and I had no idea what I was doing, but I just stuck with it. And, um, and I think that sort of persistence and continuing to talk to people and learn from people and, uh, and, and just pushing ahead sometimes in a seemingly inane sort of banging your head against the wall way, but it does, uh, it does oftentimes, uh, end up in a good place. So those would be my small bits of advice. I I
0: really echo that. Give it a go. Like, you know Halsey and i are working on a project at the moment we've got no background in filmmaking or artificial intelligence and really all of this stuff is new in experimentation no one's an expert just give it a go and uh, and have fun playing around because like that's the way you know that's the way all the so-called experts have learned we've all just been playing around and trying things out and anyone can do that
1: that's brilliant thank you halsey fran Thank you for being on podcast. It's been a pleasure having you. Thanks, guys. Take care.
2: Thank you very much. Thank you so much, Oliver.
1: Before you go, we want to hear from you. If you'd like to let us know what you think about our show, please take the quick survey in this episode's description. It'll help us make the Immersive Audio podcast even better. We really appreciate your feedback. You've been listening to the Immersive Audio Podcast. This episode was produced by Oliver Cadell and Michelle Chan and included music by Enobs Bergamo. If you can, head to our page on iTunes and leave us a review and rating. It really helps us out in pushing our show further. The podcast is also available on Spotify, SoundCloud, and Stitcher. Visit 1618digital.com to access the show notes and other episodes. Follow us at 1618digital on Twitter and Instagram. Thanks for listening.